Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Across the Campus. I'm Alex. And I'm Tyler. And today we're joined by Professor Tom Langan from the Bio Department, who's here to talk about his different research, including a different technologies that are emerging in biology. What do you think about it, Tyler? Yeah, so it was really interesting. Uh, he provided a few different um, perspectives based on you know different areas that he's lived in his life. And then also I thought the discussion of the, the new innovative technologies uh, like relating to computer science uh, and biology were really fascinating. So it was definitely a really uh, yeah. informative episode. I liked how he was really bridging the gaps between um, different disciplines. I thought that was really interesting to see. Absolutely. As well as the focus on ecology and saving the animals, of course. We love to see that. But yeah, let's get into it. This is the Ignite Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode. Today, we are super lucky to have on our wonderful Professor Tom Langan. Uh, how are you doing today? Great. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, um, I know we know you uh, from the <laughs> brief exchange of emails that we've had, uh, but we would like our listeners to lo know a little bit more about you as well. So tell us about yourself, where you're from. So um, I am a professor of biology at Clarkson University. I've been here for 22 years uh, teaching courses in ecology and environmental science and in animal behavior, which is my background. Um, I did my undergraduate work at Purdue University in Indiana, where I'm from. Uh, I went to graduate school in uh, California at uh, UC San Diego. Nice. Uh, That's where I'm from. <laughs> oh, nice. It's a nice place. And I postdoced at UCLA and uh, did teaching at both UCSD and UCLA before I came here. I also worked a couple of years in West Africa as a Peace Corps volunteer. Wow. Awesome. awesome. Uh, How did you get into bio? Like, why, what was the, like, inspiration? And was there, like, a moment you had that, like, kind of, like, sparked your interest in it? Well, I was always interested in nature. So I was a bird watcher as a kid and new plants and fish and other things. So I was interested in natural history. And that sort of led me towards biology and particularly to animal behavior. And so I worked in that, went in that direction. And then, uh, you know, I got interested in conservation. And when I worked in Africa, I worked in uh, agroforestry. So I got interested in how integrating, working with people is important for conservation. And that sort of led my direction in that career. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like you've been on to a lot of different places. Um, so one thing I was wondering is, like, you know, we're, we're at Clarkson University up in the North Country. Um, so what kind of unique opportunities does the North Country area and the Adirondack area provide in terms of biology research? This is an amazing area. You know, quite frankly, I had options to work in other places, particularly in the Midwest. And I was really excited about coming to Clarkson and the North Country, so the St. Lawrence Valley and Adirondack Mountains and Champlain Valley and, and Lake Ontario region. And part of that is because it still has big areas of intact forest. It has big grasslands, lots and lots of wetlands and lakes and rivers and other things. Because of its glacial history, because of its climate, which is cold, um, and and uh, its soils, it's not as uh, 
devoted to corn and other agriculture as, say, the Midwest, as Indiana, where I'm from. And uh, there's lots of lots of uh, places to to study how plants and animals and humans interact. Uh, the Adirondack Park is unique in the United States in that well that it is a park that is half publicly owned that is owned in this case New York State and so all of us as residents of New York State are owners and half of it is privately owned and that provides some really interesting challenges in conservation it's also the largest protected area in the lower 48 states in the United States it's bigger than the nas- our national parks any one of them and so um, I'm interested in how you can integrate people into conservation because while in the U.S. we have the model of just simply, uh, you know, putting up some borders, kicking people out, and making that a park. And that's what we think of like a national park. You can't live there, right? It's protected. Sure. In most parts of the world, parks actually have people living in them, right? They're much more of a hybrid of conservation and places where people live. And most of the remaining conservation opportunities in the United States as well are going to be in places where people live, where they have homes or they farm or other things. And so how do we integrate conservation with other human needs? And this is a great place to to investigate that. And that's what a lot of my research has been. Oh, that's really interesting, yeah. Yeah, I I can understand why you why San Diego wasn't the most interesting place to study biodiversity yeah. because there isn't a ton of like I guess as far as marine life, yes, but oh, oh I would disagree. There in San Diego County was really interesting and I did a lot of work there as well. Um I mean San Diego is far more developed than here, that's for sure. Yeah. Um and it has rapidly developed between the 1990s when I was there. And now many of the areas where I worked in San Diego County are now under pavement, but were yeah. chaparral or coastal sage then. But uh, it has one of the highest concentrations of, of endangered species in the country. Really? So trying to figure out how to protect those species in what's a very urban environment is also an interesting challenge. And so, you know, I, I worked there on, the que- on questions associated with, you know, what happens when you have little fragments of nature surrounded by, you know, dense suburban urban development? And can we conserve nature in that kind of that urban matrix? So it's a different kind of problem. Yeah, I I saw that you had a research paper published. um, Was it, I think it was the defining and applying uh, the rules of like, or urban life rules and design to sustainability in healthy cities. I thought... That was a very interesting paper. Uh, I, I just kind of skimmed through it. Um, what was kind of like the whole background of that, and what was the so, different so, rules that you defined there? So first of all, that was part of a project. The U.S. National Science Foundation is looking for the next big questions. What are the things that uh, the Sci- National Science Foundation, which is a principal funder of science in the United States, what should they prioritize is the new innovative kinds of research? What are the new innovative problems that they should be looking at in the future? So I was uh, recruited to go to Austin, Texas with a group of all kinds of biologists in all kinds of different fields. And we went through a process of basically, it was kind of like a, 
you know, an incubator or something where, you know, where they're trying to get people together and think and come up with new ideas. So I worked with some scientists that we got together from around the country, and we focused on the idea of what can we learn from uh, ecology of urban areas, the reason being that over half of all Americans live in urban areas, and within the next couple of decades, it'll be about 75 or 80 percent of Americans will live in it. More than, more than half of all people on Earth live in cities now. So we really should be under, both understanding how cities, what, how the ecology, plants and animals and microbes in cities, help the quality of life for people. But how can we redesign the future cities or our cities now redesigned in the future so they're better places both for maintaining features of nature and improving the quality of life for people? So I think urban ecology and urban research so far has been what is and what we're pointing out is we need to understand what is but then also use that to think what ought, what ought to we be doing, how ought to we redesign cities to make them places that can maintain plants and animals, maintain a healthy environment, and provide things that we know that people need. Yeah, that makes me think a lot about um, the Planet Earth doc. There was one. Um, there was one episode I think they had on like urban, how urban development has affected animals and how those animals are integrating within the cities, which was interesting to see. But then at the same time, they also showed how cities uh, are harming, such as like turtles. Instead of going towards uh, like in Rio, how a lot of turtles would use light in order to find the ocean, mm-hmm. rather than going towards the moon, which is like normally what they're genetically like programmed to do, because they have those lights behind the beach like all the time. They're going towards the roads, and then they just end up getting hit all the time, wow. rather than going towards the ocean. Right, right. And that's that's a classic example right there. And, uh, you know, in, it's, it's the same in Florida. And so now in Florida, they've recognized that problem. And in communities where turtles nest, you actually have to turn out lights, off lights, at certain times of the year, at certain times of the night. And, uh, you know, you're fined if you don't. And, you know, there's strict restrictions so that the, the young turtles, will, the, the, the hatchlings will go towards the ocean where they see the moonlight shining off the waves. As it should be. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's other cases that are positive. So we looked at the example of in Austin, Texas, they, they have some bridges over the river that runs through Austin. And Mexican free-tail bats started roosting there. And we're talking you know, 20, 50, now 200,000 bats, a lot of bats. These are bats that fly out of there, and they basically feed over all of that part of the West as far as Kansas. Um, and so it was seen as a real pest because they smell, and, you know, they people were bothered, you know, that yeah, they're down there and worried them. So, you know, there was there was interest in, in, in eradicating them, right? And so, you know, just eliminating them and sealing it up so they couldn't have habitat. But meanwhile... You know, some people pointed out these bats are important. They eat mosquitoes, and mosquitoes are a real problem in Austin and other parts of that part of the world. They spread disease and all of that, and here we have these things that are helping control those insect populations. And people started saying, well, it's also kind of neat. And in fact, it's become a tourist destination. 
They protected the bats, and now people line up on the bridge right at dusk, and people pay to get into boats, to go up in boats up the river to (laughs) where the bridge is, and they wait for the bats to come out, and they watch the bats come out. So now it's an amenity in that city, and it provides something that city residents um, enjoy and have pride in. Um, It's... And there's other places in the country and in the world where things like that happen. In in Socorro, New Mexico, which is a little small city in New Mexico, there's a lot of springs. And uh, there was a little isopod. It's basically like what we call roly-polies. It's a little arthropod, about as obscure as you can imagine, right, And just a, that lives in caves, in springs and caves. It was an endangered species, um, listed as an endangered species, so protected. And there was a lot of people who were upset and had opposition to this because it affected how they could draw back water, if groundwater. If groundwater levels dropped too much, it would eliminate the species. So there was uh, laws enacted or regulations enacted to reduce the amount of groundwater that's extracted in that area. And that groundwater is being used for agriculture. It's used for drinking and bathing. So, you know, that's a cost to people. But meanwhile, kids kind of liked the, the the little the Sakuro, um isopod they you know they, they thought it was cool looking because it looks like a little dinosaur they started you know drawing pictures and wearing t-shirts and things and you know because it only occurs there and nowhere else in the world there was sort of civic pride this is our weird little endangered beast yeah. and it completely flipped around it's now part of the you know the brand you could say of that town that city you know, and people protect it, and they don't mind the fact that they have to to watch the overextraction of water. And in fact, they understand, you know, that you don't blame that organism on overextraction. That's a human problem that needs human solutions. Yeah, a common theme that we've been seeing uh, throughout a couple of our episodes is the impact of uh, kind of popular culture and social media. What, what impact do you think this popular culture has on uh, bringing people together for causes such as these? Well, first of all, it, it, it provides uh, the information so people know about these issues, right? And, and the information becomes accessible. When there's a lot of, you know, things like visual images and video and other kinds of things, that makes it much more real than reading, you know, in a newspaper article in black and white a description of this thing, which is pretty boring and you can't imagine. And it's pretty abstract. Yeah. But it allows people a forum and, and with social media that allows people to sort of have conversations or discuss. It, we know all the negatives. There's lots of negatives and it can be polarizing and people take extreme positions. and There's a lot of incivility. But the positive side is... It does help people to also put out positive messages, other people to receive that, and and show, for example, that it's not just one crank or not just one professor or something that's concerned about this, but there's more people who are concerned and are interested. So it really has the possibility of building very quickly interest in advocacy. Mm-hmm. Definitely mm-hmm. with... Uh definitely with the trendy type people as well even though they're not exact they don't exactly know what like they're supporting they support it anyway and they 
like repost these things and they do these things because it's part of the popular culture and it's and it's great. But then again, there is that time where or there is those situations where it goes in the opposite direction too. Mm-hmm. And you just diverted the experts in that case. Mm-hmm. Um, along the the vein of technology that we've been talking about, um, I wanted to shift a little bit to talk about uh, research methods. So mm-hmm. biology, I think, is an interesting case where you have this balance between uh, field work and you know mathematical and computer modeling. And so I was just wondering, like, how you balance that in your research. Well, in one in one sense, they they're complementary to each other, right? Um, I mean, it's one of the th- the transitions that's happened in my career in the areas where I work is the increasing importance of geographic information systems and computer modeling that uses those kinds of systems. So I'm interested in in questions of how different kinds of land cover and land use are you know distributed in the environment. So I like maps. And then I like to look at how things are affected by those features on maps. And so now that we have um, remote sensing data from satellites that give us very um, fine-scale characterization of what a landscape looks like, I can look at and I can say, what's the percentage of forest um, on this 30-meter by 30-meter spot in Jefferson County? I can ask what percentage of... of, um, impermeable land cover is there, like cement or road or other things. I can characterize everything else about it. I can look at its soils. I can overlay all kinds of information, right? And by doing that, I can ask questions like, you know, where is this species found? We look we look at an endangered species of turtle, Blanding's turtle, which is has populations in this area. We try to explain what what explains where it occurs and where it does not occur. So I can take and get all of these data from these different kinds of um, geo-referenced geographical data, and I can create a computer model that predicts where that species occurs and um, use it and then validate it and, and, and then try to understand where it predicts that species. And if we know that it doesn't occur there, why? Is our model screwed up or, or deficient, we could say? Or is it that, for example, it was driven extinct by some human activities, but the habitat's appropriate? Maybe we could reintroduce it there. It was interesting in our modeling approach, in this particular modeling approach, um, we built a model predicting where this species occurs in um, the North Country, basically Frank Jefferson, St. Lawrence County, and, and around there. And the model worked pretty well to predict the areas that we knew that they occurred, but part of that was, and we validated that, but then we applied it for all of New York State. And what was interesting was it predicted the, the locations that we actually knew where the populations were, the, that these were there. So the, that wasn't incorporated into the model, but the model predicted that there would be a population in the lower Hudson Valley and a population in western New York along the Lake, Lake Erie area. And that's exactly where the only other two know. And then in the south, and then in the Allegheny County area. And those are the only three populations we know about. And it, bang, it nailed them. We still, it seems almost like maybe we just got lucky. But, but you know, these kinds of models can be very powerful tools. Um, there are other tools that, you know, you use to predict animal movements and, um, 
you can use those then to predict where in road networks you might want to put mitigation. You might want to put fencing or passageways. Interesting Clarkson story is that one of the um, one of the most important tools that we now use in ecology is something called CircuitScape, and it's basically uh, a, a computer uh, modeling platform where you take and you basically digitize the landscape in terms of something called resistance. If you know, like, what kinds of habitat or features an animal likes to move through if it's moving and what are the places it avoids or what are places that are absolutely obstacles, you create basically a map of those things. It's like we call it a heat map. So it'll say these are places where it's likely to go. These are places it's going to avoid. And then you can use – you can look at that landscape resistance and you can predict if an animal started here – and is going there, how will it move to get there? And that model was created by a, a person who, a conservation biologist, who got his undergraduate degree at Clarkson in electrical engineering. And then when he went to graduate school in conservation biology, he remembered his electrical engineering and computer <laughs> science. And he said, well, you know, we could think of these as like electrons. We could think of it as circuit flow. If we were a circuit, how do we do this? So CircuitScape uses, you know, principles of how circuit, how electrons move in circuits to predict how animals move across landscape. Whoa. And it's a fundamental tool wow. that we use today. Is uh, there some like GPS related kind of technology in that as well? Sure. I mean, the GPS, GPS, right, is used to, you know, geo-reference a location. So you might have, for example, on an animal, you might uh, put a GPS collar or GPS sensor on it so that you can get data on where it moves. And then you can use that to figure out the landscape resistance because you can say, well, the animals always tend to move in the, through this area. You know, it must be that that's what it prefers to move in. It avoids these other areas. You know, GPS is a fundamental tool because it tells you where you're at. So whenever we find something, we georeference it. That's a spot on a map that we can then characterize. So GPS is fundamental for all those kinds, of course, and finding those places as well. But, um, you know, that's fundamental for georeferencing. GIS, Geographic Information Systems, is sort of the platform that you use to do these kinds of spatial um, analysis and spatial modeling. That's, uh, this is actually really interesting to me as a computer scientist. What types of models are you using to develop this or what, that are you using to predict these locations? Okay, so for like to predict the locations of where, um, you know, the species occurs. Right. There is There are a couple of different ways of doing it. And one is they call it maxent maximum entropy it's basically but basically what it's doing is you take a landscape and you have the the spots where you've observed the species that you have records and then you throw down thousands of other random points and you're basically creating you know sort of with lots of predictor variables you know you figure out what kind of things might be meaningful like altitude land cover around a spot the temp- minimum temperature, maximum temperature, whatever it is you think might be important and that you can get data for, and now we can get data for most of those things. And then it takes an event model and puts them all into it and then looks at which are the ones that explain most of the variation. 
that distinguish between, you might call it hits or misses, where they occur in random points. There's other ways of doing that where we use basically multiple regression, where you're taking a bunch of variables, you make a general linear model, and you're, again, predicting where they occur and where they don't, and creating a model using those variables that are most predictive of that. Then you have to do some tricks like, you know, you, you know if you want to validate your model, ideally you keep some data back, both of those points that you don't use to build your model, and then once yeah. you have your model, you ask, does it actually successfully <laughs> predict those? Yeah. Or did you just get, you know, is it just chance? So there's, you know, tricks of the trade like that. But basically, you're taking a whole bunch of predictors that you think might work. And then you've got something that you're predicting your outcome, in this case, presence or absence. And then uh, finding which ones of those predict it well. And once you find those, you can just write a little formula, a little script, right? And then you can put that right into the map. And it will, you know, it'll give you a percentage of how, how likelihood it's one or zero. And then you just, you know, you figure out a criteria of hit and miss. You put it onto the map and you'll get, you know, on your map, for example, indicated all the areas where the model predicts that the species is present. And then you could go out and see if that's true, um, you know, and that works pretty well. And in fact, it works well with sparse data. People are using it now for, like, rare species, like endangered species that are in the rainforest and things that you can't really survey very well. It can still work pretty well to give you an idea. There's some pretty big innovations in, like, both biology and other fields using these models to create some uh, – or using this new technology in order to kind of further the um, – further your – predictions and classifications of these different species locations it's pretty awesome what technologies or um or innovations are you most excited about in the field of biology that are coming out now well i could say one that's that's exciting i guess you would call it a technology well it is a technology is the use of drones and, you know, I mean, drones are fun. We all know they're fun. <laughs> yep. But they also turned out to be re- a big, big help for, you know, getting data that we can't otherwise get. So, for example, I work in wetlands. And wetlands are just, you know, they're really tough places to walk through. It's tough to kind of get, like, a big picture. And, you know, you can go and get aerial photographs. And, you know, on my, my cell phone, right, my smartphone, I can get great data to look at, you know, sort of mapping and stuff and know exactly where I'm at, you know, and that's a real plus. But, you know, with a with a, a drone with the right sensors, I can characterize the vegetation. You know, if there is a, a if I'm studying a bird that's there and their nests, I can fly it up there and get a photo and see whether the how many eggs there are, how many nestlings there are. Um you know, with different kinds of sensors, I can get a I can get a water sample from the middle of the lake without disturbing it. So it's very can be very very useful. A former graduate student of mine, that's part of his business now, is that he um, uh, helps design you know put in sensors or design ways uh, for scientists to do ex- do experiments with um, with drones. So he was an E and M major at Clarkson, and then he did a master's degree in biology with me. So Brendan Carberry is his name. Do any animals, like, I, I mean, uh, does it bother the animals? Like, because I, drones are pretty loud, If I mean. 
They can. You have to be careful, right? I mean, you have to know what you're using and how you're using them. And they can be disturbing, right? And so, you know, it requires, like with everything, some caution there. And, and you know, all technologies will have certain effects on animals. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, so, yeah, you have to be careful. But some animals, you know, just ignore them, right? It depends. And I, I have a friend who is studying um, what are called terrapins, which are turtles that live in kind of salt water, brackish water areas. And so the typical way to survey them is you kind of go around in a boat, you know, quietly with a trolling motor, and somebody stands up in the bow, and they watch, and they see them swimming away, and they count them, you know, how many they see. Well, they got their drone, and they went over, and they saw how many turtles they were missing (laughs) there. The turtles weren't bothered by the drone, so when the drone would go over, they would see them. But when they look at the boat, when they use the drone with the boat, they see that they dive way ahead of the boat. They never see them. So they were uh, systematically underestimating how many animals were there by their technology. And and in this case, drones worked well. So that's just one. But I think overall what's really exciting is that we have more and more sensors and sensor-based data that allow us to collect data without a lot of the the kinds of effort that were there prior. And we can use that then to focus on the science. Definitely a lot more accurate. You know, the amount of data is incredible. And probably the most important thing that's happened um, in in the in the sciences overall, and certainly in biology and certainly in ecology, um, is that now we're required when we publish a paper, we're required to make that data publicly available and downloadable somewhere. So there are you know there are archives. There's basically digital arc- data archives that we can upload our data. Most journals also allow that. And there is now, you know, standards for metadata, standards for um, file format so that they don't go obsolete and so forth. And so scientists are required to put their data out there so that other people could use them. Now it's coming in, you know, terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data all the time. The big problem now is how do you um, catalog them in ways that people can find them to use? That's still a challenge. But at least the data is being conserved. In the past, it kept it in a file, right, in a file folder. And, you know, it disappeared when you died. And, you know, occasionally somebody would write, you know, if you wanted the data, and maybe the person would send it to you. But more often, they wouldn't know where it was or it would be too much work to, you know, copy them and stuff. So it just would, you know, the data died with the, the, the researcher. But now that data is public, and so anybody can use it. It also catches a lot of cases of fraud, well, I shouldn't say. I mean, it catches it catches cases of fraud. I don't know that fraud is all that frequent, but but there's certain people that did fraudulent stuff, and other people have downloaded the data and then started looking at the data and say these numbers just don't make any sense. You know, there's patterns in the data. You know, that make it clear that they just copied and pasted. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. the same data sixty times and said they had sixty samples instead of twenty or something. So there's some notorious cases like that, and the only way you could catch those cases is if that data is available. So that's really changed how we do science, and that will continue to have benefits. Yeah, that has to be hugely important. You can't you can't be publishing things that people are going to use for the future if you're just going to make up some stuff. Because if people are going to rely on this, like uh, some company needs to 
predict or accurately know like what exact damage they're doing mm. or what sort of thing they're impacting on the environment, but that was all made up, then they have no idea what they're doing. So. Yeah, that's one thing. And then another thing is, you know, a paper is published and, you know, it has some data in it. And then 50 years later, we see, well, you know, that data actually is pretty important for this other thing that it wasn't collected for, you know. So somebody describes the water quality in this lake as part of their fish study. And then 50 years later, you're concerned about, you know, environmental conditions changing in that lake or the impact of climate change or something. And you'd like to see that data back again, not just a graph that has a little data point or, you know, the mean was this, but you want to actually look at the actual data. You know, before, you'd be real lucky to find some archive where that paper, that stuff was written down. But now you can go back and you'll be able to go back and, and look at it online and get that data and use it for those new purposes. And that's what's happening very frequently is those data are getting used for new purposes that were not what the the original data collector imagined but, you know, is useful. It's also proven to be really useful for teaching. So now we can get data and we can use in our classrooms. We can use that data and ask questions about things. That's something that I've done as well. Mm-hmm. That long time uh, impact is another thing too that kind of it makes me think of another area of math. So like uh, I believe you know number theory was developed in a pretty like abstract sense and was kind of criticized as like oh well you know it's it's too it's just useless and it's too abstract. And then you know fifty hundred years later it becomes a foundation of cryptography when as computers are developed. And so it's kind of that same idea of like something being developed at the time and not really being known what it's used for uh, until later on. Exactly, exactly. I mean, people people said the same thing in the 19th century about Boolean algebra. You know, why would, <laughs> yeah. why would you have these Boolean, you know, that's kind of like just, you know, that's what mathematicians do to have fun. But, you know, why would you really do that? And, of course, you can't do computer science yeah. without it. A... You know, it's fundamental now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of moving towards like students and teaching, as you were saying, um, mm-hmm. how do students get involved in this type of research and how can they find these opportunities? Because I know a lot of people are very nervous to ask their professors about um, the research that they're doing and how to get involved in that as well. Well, first, they should not be nervous, you know, certainly not at Clarkson. So, you know, there, it, is, it is part of our job as faculty members to provide opportunities for undergraduates to have an experience in research. I mean, similarly, many of us have graduate programs, so we have graduate students as well. But, but, it, but uh, one of our principal jobs is helping provide those opportunities for undergraduates. So finding out what their research is is important. That's the first step. And that can be, you know, usually we all have profiles online with Clarkson, Many of the departments have handbooks that include a description of the research of faculty. Um, some of our departments, we have even do use social media and put that out in Facebook and other th- and in Twitter and other things. But finding out what faculty members do, and then you know making an appointment or going in office hours and expressing interest. You know, for many of us, um, you know, we have some opportunities during the year. And then we have opportunities in the summer, including some paid opportunities when we have funding. And so that you're, you know, if you show interest and, you know, a student who comes and shows interest and then maybe works in my lab 
for an hour a week or something on something. We put together a project. Is somebody that I'm going to recruit for, you know, my own research. There are a few programs around Clarkson that provide opportunities as well. Um, we have, you know, the, the Coupo has some opportunities for some students. You know, you can see advertised those kinds of things, and those are important. But it's also true that, you know, you you talk to your advisor or you talk to a faculty member you trust. There's an enormous number of opportunities that are away from Clarkson that provide paid research opportunities. A lot of them come under the rubric research experience for undergraduates or REUs. And those are specifically designed for students from other college, one college to go to another in the summer and do research, paid research, pretty good, well paid, in fact. Um, and so we as faculty members can help a student find those opportunities. Um, you know, a lot of them, you have to learn how to look for them. Do you have international opportunities too? There are. There are some. Research opportunities internationally um, are, a, are a challenge unless you're working with a faculty member here. There are some. Um, and, and, you know, many of our students will do a study abroad kind of experience, you know, a semester abroad. And a lot of them will do research in another country, and some of them will go back. Some of our students have. Um, I've taken students on courses to Costa Rica. This year I'm taking students to Kenya. And, uh, you know, sometimes I will take them then back for research as well, particularly Costa Rica where I do a lot of work. Um, And so there's those kinds of opportunities as well. After college there's even more in that there's, you know, different agencies that provide opportunities to work overseas, although also more applied things like the Peace Corps. Well, well, uh, that's a huge insight. Thank you so much. Um, We are almost at the end of our time. So main takeaways, um, careful what you're doing with the uh, environment, especially with ecology and animals. Um, And don't be afraid to ask for research opportunities for faculty and professors. Thank you so much for coming on. We huge, huge thank you um, once again. And... uh, Yeah, it's basically the end of our episode. All right, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity Mm -hmm. to speak. Thank you. Mm -hmm.